Hej allihopa, välkomna till tionde avsnittet av Talk to Me. Dagens avsnitt kommer att vara på engelska. Hi everybody and welcome to this special edition of my interview podcast called Talk to Me. Special in the sense that it will be in English because my guest today does speak Swedish but his native tongue is English and therefore I decided to do this interview in English. Which is also great because some of you actually don't speak Swedish and now you can finally hear at least one interview in this podcast series. My name is Sarah Donfeiner. I am an artist and today's guest is Eric Bibb. Eric was born on the 16th of August 1951 in New York City, USA. He is a musician, songwriter, and artist. Although Eric Bibb has had a career for almost five decades now, some of you who might not listen to blues, R&B, or folk music still might not have heard of him. He's released 30 to 40 albums, toured worldwide for years and years and collaborated with some of the biggest artists of all time. He's also been nominated for both Swedish and American Grammys. The reason that I've chosen to interview him is mainly because he is an artist that I find very inspiring, both musically and personally, and he has quite a unique story. I also have to say that there is a personal note to this interview. Eric has six children, and his eldest son happens to be my big brother, Renny Miro. So Eric actually came to Sweden with my mother, Francine Lee Miro Feiner. And then she met someone else, he met someone else, he had other kids, she had me. Well, first she had my sister, then she had me with my dad. And thus far, that's the reason I'm here, which is not the reason he's here. But yeah, you'll get it. It's also a small part of the conversation. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. And so I invite you to an hour of a lot of music, a lot of storytelling, and hopefully for a lot of you who maybe don't speak English, also an English lesson. Who knows? Okay, thank you so much for listening. Tack snälla för att ni lyssnar. Let's go. Nu åker vi. I'd like to begin with some of Eric's music. Here's Saucer and Cup, Tell Riley, and Spirit I Am. She likes her coffee, and I got to have my tea. Now, I don't try to change her, and she don't try to change me. Ever since we met, everything's looking up. 
go together like a saucer. Tell Riley, baby, next time he comes to town, if he needs somewhere to lay, lay his body down. Baby, he's welcome to stay. And mark my words, he's gonna be big someday. Welcome Eric Bibb. Welcome Tack. Eric Bibb. <laughs> Tack. Uh, to this podcast interview called Talk to Me. Mm. My thought is that we'll yeah. do the interview in English. Okay. And whenever we feel like we need to say something in Swedish to be specific, so jag vi det. And the reason that you speak Swedish, just to be clear, is because you live here. Yeah. I've actually done the math and I have spent the majority of my adult life in Sweden. Although I have lived in several countries, born and raised in New York City, and traveled um, to Europe on my own at age 18 and began living uh, abroad and didn't return for another 10 years. But um, that period after that was only five years. So let's say from age one to 18 and then uh, maybe five more years, uh, and that's it. The rest of the time I've spent in Sweden or England, for the most part, yeah. And so I've known you my entire life, not just my entire adult life, but I've actually <laughs> known you from since I was a fetus. Exactly. Um, you are the father of my oldest brother, my only brother, Renny mm. Miro, and my uh, mother's... I, I usually say my mother's first husband. That's not true. She actually was married before you, and you guys were actually never married. That's right. We were definitely a, a couple married in spirit and uh, running a, a wonderful, growing family. But yeah. But you and my mother, who's also originally from New York, Francine, you guys came to Sweden together. We certainly did. Uh, although you met originally in New York, which we'll get oh, into. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so... Our connection is, of course, a family connection. You've sort of been the reoccurring uncle in my life mm. as a family member. Mm. Um, and uh, the other connection that's probably been bigger for us over the years is the fact that when it came to music, you were 
the first artist that I ever worked with as a kid. And I've, I, I, I doubt that I've ever seen any other artist's uh, live as much as I've seen you over the years hmm. since wow. I grew up watching right. you. And uh, I have amazing memories of hearing you sing mm. as a child. Mm. But the big thing about why I wanted to interview you is that you're an exceptional human being and uh, a, quite a rare artist, probably not from where you're coming from and mm -hmm. what you grew up with. But for me, mm -hmm. there aren't many artists like you around. There haven't been for a lot of years, and there are definitely not now hmm. a lot of artists like you coming up. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big things about you is that you're self-made, self-taught, and that basically you, your guitar, and your hat <laughs> has been, um, you know, a constant traveling musician from the age of basically 20 until now when you turn 70 next year. Yeah, even earlier than 20 for sure. So yeah, it's, you know, that's it's a, been that's a long a arc. Yeah. Five-decade career and mm. you've made over 40 albums and you've done things that I can just imagine. And so as a, as a person, there's so much <laughs> that I find interesting about you and I'm very happy that I've had you in my life and that you're so close to me. So I get to ask you to do this interview. <laughs> this is fun, Sarah. This is really fun. <laughs> is it strange to hear me talking as a, an adult? Well, um, <laughs> no, it's not strange. But what it is, is interesting that the children, as it were, in my life, the, the, or the people who I've grown up with since they were children, meaning your, your brother Rennie and you and your sisters, to actually realize that so much time has uh, gone by and that you are the ones who give me the opportunity to really reflect on this long journey. Rennie, who was uh, responsible for helping me put together that one-man theater show, Tales yeah, from so a Blues Brother. So two years ago, um, my brother... Um, decided with his partner to produce a tour with you. And you've toured for, like I said, the past 50 years <laughs> in the world. But he wanted you to do a musical monologue mm. and tell your story. Yeah. Um, not only through your songs, but actually through your real life story. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge inspiration for a lot of people who saw that show, but also probably a wake-up call for a lot of people who saw that show who didn't know mm -hmm. this about you. So chronologically, do you want to start with who were your parents? Mm. Where did you grow up and how did your life begin? Sure. I would like to do that. Um, you know, uh, I was born into this educated, culturally sophisticated family so you could say if we uh, if we accept that we choose our families, mm -hmm. well, I certainly did <laughs> choose a humdinger of a family, and I realized that the choice was um, perfect for preparing me for what I have ended up pursuing so obsessively. <laughs> <laughs> so the music, you know, is is something that I was aware of in my family very early. My dad. Leon Bibb, uh, a wonderful trained singer from Louisville, Kentucky, who came to New York in the late 1940s and um, wanted a career on the Broadway stage and went to all kinds of auditions and 
ended up in the chorus of many a Broadway show together with people like John Raitt, Bonnie Wright, Raitt's dad, who was a friend. But my dad was frustrated because as an African-American, he uh, felt that he was not being uh, considered for the kinds of roles, the lead roles that he wanted. He did not enjoy just being consigned to the chorus always. And so this is a man, Leon, who was coming up, born in 1922. So his heroes musically were people like Roland Hayes, the, the classically trained African-American uh, singer of opera and leader mm. who traveled to Germany and Europe uh, early on. So my dad was really a kind of, as I said, um, straight-laced uh, singer with a beautiful voice, not a blues singer, not a gospel shouter. He used his voice in a very classical way, even though he became well-known as a folk singer. Mm-hmm. Run through the rock, rock, won't you hide me? Run through the rock, rock, won't you hide me? Run through the rock, rock, won't you hide me? All on that day. My dad came to New York, wanted to be on the stage, entered the the talent contest at the famous Apollo Theater in Harlem, and won. And as the prize, he got to be uh, a singer with the the touring Lucky Mildner Band uh, for for some some period of time. That was his introduction to show business. My dad decided, yes, um, folk music. That's that's where I come from. I will make a, a repertoire of. Um, uh, older ballads, work songs, and spirituals, and join this this movement, this folk music movement. Describe folk music for people who, who've mm-hmm. never really heard it, because in every country, folk music sure. sounds so different. Sure. Um, in comparison to, for instance, Swedish folk music. Yes. What would you say if you just use like three elements mm-hmm. musically? What is folk music okay. for you when you describe it? We're talking about beginning with the American music that's traditional. And that could be everything from so-called Negro spirituals and work songs to Irish ballads and sea shanties, Appalachian music that has basically derived from music from the the Celtic islands, you know, Ireland, Britain, etc., Scotland. All of that music was familiar to my dad growing up. And that was considered folk music in those days. Work songs, chain gang songs, spirituals, quite a few spirituals were. And if we look at that. sort of the, yeah. the, the visual of it for me is a singer, mm-hmm. an acoustic guitar. Yeah, or a banjo. Uh, yes, and and a storytelling lyric. Yes, yes, exactly. It's not blues. It doesn't have a format of maybe the same sentence going mm. a couple of times. It's a more of what we maybe today would refer to Americana. as early. Yes, Americana, country. However, yeah, I would definitely include blues. Essentially, blues is the original Americana. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, but his musical tastes were broad. And my mom was also, uh, although she was not a professional, her brother was, we'll get to him later, but my mom was an educator all of her professional life, but very, very musically inclined and knowledgeable. She could play the piano and she could sing, even though we teased her, (laughs) because my dad was the singer in the family, but she could sing. Uh, She was maybe... uh, a snippet hipper than my dad, you know. Your mom, man. <laughs> if there's 
a vision of whoever you aspire to be in, in terms of hipness, hmm. your, your parents were definitely it. Your mom was, Marilyn was her name, and she was the hmm. honorary grandmother of, of me and a lot of other yeah. kids that came along um, as bonuses to yes. your family. But she was uh, the epitome of cool and the epitome of grace. Hmm. And uh, how did they meet? Well, it's interesting. Um, they were introduced to each other by uh, another musician. Bob de Cormier introduced my dad to my mother or my mother to my dad. And the so rest your is mom history. is originally from New Mexico, right? Albuquerque, New Mexico in the Southwest, which was always a source of fascination and pride for us kids. What? Albuquerque, New Mexico? <laughs> you know? Cactuses so he, and so, all that so, stuff. So the, the Southern upbringing that your dad had... Mm-hmm. And New Mexico brought them to a very different life in mm. New York. Mm. Absolutely. They um, met and made the new married life based in New York a couple who attracted all kinds of very interesting people, a real eclectic international crowd. Where in New York did you grow up? Queens. Uh, first in Corona, Queens. Then we moved when I was about seven to Hollis Queens. It was called Corona Queens? Corona Queens. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, That's yeah. That's a very, very odd thing today yeah. to be called. It is. That's it funny. Is. I didn't, I didn't even that. think of that. <laughs> That's the first time I've reflected on the fact that Corona Queens, yeah. So that was your first up. home. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And then we moved to uh, Long Island. But at the age of 13, I auditioned and got accepted into the High School of Music and Art, which was at that time... Uh, in Harlem on 135th Street. Since then, it has become a part of what's known as the Fame School. Uh, Which basically means that the show Fame that took place in the 80s is based on that school. Yeah. And then it moved downtown. Yes, exactly. And conglomerated with the High School of Performing Arts, now in uh, Lincoln Center. Was it ever met with skepticism <laughs> when you said you wanted to go into the arts or was it actually encouraged? Uh, let me just add that my mother's brother, John Lewis, was a famous musician, famous composer and piano player, co-founder of the Modern Jazz Quartet. So my parents were well aware of the life of a working musician and I'm sure they probably, at the top of the list, were not choosing musician, professional musician for their kids, uh, you know, optimal. When did you know that you (laughs) had talent? (laughs) I knew that music was more than just something uh, to pass the time. I knew that it was a part of who I really identified myself as. I would sing. I got interested in playing the guitar very early, age seven or eight, got my first guitar. And Once I started, I never stopped. That's all I can say. I wanted to play guitar and sing. Those were my heroes. Odetta, you know, my dad, um, any number of wonderful performers that I saw growing up, including meeting Bob Dylan in my own living room. But those were the... Can we just stop at that story? (laughs) But you had him in your living room. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happened was, just briefly, um, my dad... um, when he was really riding a, a big wave in the folk music circles that I spoke about earlier in New York, he decided he was going to have a party at home in our 14-room house in Queens for his colleagues. 
And I remember this was a... You had a 14-room house? Yeah. But this is what it was. We lived in an area of Queens, a neighborhood that was one of those neighborhoods that was just beginning to demographically shift from essentially being almost all white, as it were, to an integrated neighborhood uh, where middle class and uh, upper middle class African-American families were moving into an area that was previously not uh, a place where there would be many people who looked like us. The other houses, the smaller houses, you know, were middle class families who were perhaps parents working as teachers or work for the transit authority Mm -hmm. or, you know, working people. So it was kind of mixed neighborhood. We have to actually get back to why Bob Dylan was in your living Oh, yeah, we forgot about Bob. Yeah. Bob, we're coming back. (laughs) My dad had that party. Right, um, in the 14-room house. In the 14-room house. In a cold December night, I remember, all of these people started showing up. And then just shortly before midnight, you know, I was already uh, upstairs in my room. I'd been sent up to bed because people thought, yeah, it's too late. And the the, uh, the noise level in the living room seemed to rise. And I thought, maybe he's come, you know. So I snuck back downstairs, you know, in my pajamas, in my robe. And there in the middle of the living room, standing, you know, looking cool and, you know, like um, he was above it all, was Bob Dylan, 22 years old, twice my age. And I went right up to him and I introduced myself, stuck out my hand. I said, hi, I'm Eric. I play guitar too. And he deigned to have a conversation with me. He did? He said, I think he was really kind of not so pleased with all of these bourgeois middle-class people, you know, making such a big Mm -hmm. fuss out over him. And here comes this cocky little 11-year-old telling me he plays guitar. I'll talk to him, you know. So we did. We spoke and he said, you know, well, you know, forget all that fancy stuff, man. Keep it simple. That's what he said to me. The keeping it simple part, over the years, I've really come to realize what what good advice that was. And I tell you, Sarah, uh, I wish I could just meet Bob one more time just to say, hey, man, that little conversation we had when I was 11 years old has given me so much PR mileage through the years. (laughs) I just want to thank you, bro, not only for the music, but for the fact that I've been able to tell people I met you in my living room, man. You know, it's, it's definitely given me cool points, you know. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So um, you went to the High School of Music and Art. 
you where did I you, met your mom. Yeah, it will sound stranger than it is, but my mother was actually your teacher in that's school. That's right. That's right. Um, she's wee a bit older than yeah. you, so she was Not your teacher in history. Yeah, she was actually she was a history teacher for sure, and. I think um, Francine was actually what's called my homeroom teacher, meaning mm-hmm. she was the teacher. Class for a Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That she was. Yeah. Um, and so you graduated in 1969, yeah. the year of Woodstock, mm. the year of, of a lot of political things happening a in America. Of, a lot of stuff happened. Vietnam. And yeah. where did you want to go? Mm. Who did you want to be? When I graduated, um, I got a scholarship, fortunately, to Columbia University, to my parents' uh, great, you know, joy and happiness, and maybe even surprise, because <laughs> <laughs> my attendance record at school, at high school, probably left a lot to be desired. I played hooky a lot. What did you do? Oh, I went down to Greenwich Village and hung out. Oh, yeah. I either went to art movie houses or hung out at Cafe Figaro down on McDougal Street. Um, Manhattan was the world in a nutshell. Uh, There was always things to do. But uh, yeah, so I graduated and I had gotten this scholarship to Columbia University and I even had uh, a dorm space. So I tried living in the dormitory with these kids from the Midwest who had experiences were completely different from my own. I felt very out of place. Uh, And after really giving it a try, uh, maybe not a, an all-American try, <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I kind of tried to stick with it. But I realized fairly quickly that it wasn't my world, and things were happening politically around me that were very disturbing. I was really quite fed up with what was going on uh, in New York at the time. I'll, I'll just briefly tell you that for me, as a child of the '60s civil rights movement, justice and equal rights on on the the issues of racial discrimination, but also the the Vietnam War was raging and there was a lot of activity around ending the war. And with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, the Black and White Coalition for Civil Rights basically disintegrated in a a way that was unsettling and um, not friendly. And I I decided, no, I need to uh, actually redefine my role in all of this and who I am at the ripe age of 18. And I had been fortunately exposed to uh, other cultures. The family took a trip to Europe when I was uh, 12 and 13, had a 13th birthday with my twin sister in Kiev. You know, there's not too many people, (laughs) American kids, particularly African-American kids, who were traveling around Europe at the age of 12, took a boat, from New York to England, you know, six days on the ocean, um, traveled around by car in France and Italy uh, for one month, and then flew from Vienna to Moscow, where my dad had a month-long tour of the Soviet Union at the guests of the Soviet state. And on the way back to New York after that month in the Soviet Union, where did we stop? Stockholm. And I lived at Hotel Malmen with my parents and my sisters for three days, went to Grönland. So I had all of these experiences wow. sort of telling me <laughs> seven years earlier than it happened where my future was going. I decided to, to take off on my own and went to Europe 
uh, as a young 18-year-old, you know, guitar in hand, uh, and went first to Paris. I really did not have a firm uh, vision about what my destiny was going to be or wanted to be. I knew only that I needed a fresh viewpoint, and I knew that music was my companion. You got out of the plane. You had, I guess, a handwritten note somewhere of where you were going. It was almost like there was a delayed kind of hippiedom that mm -hmm. came to Europe. So what I experienced in the end of the 60s in New York, that whole ideology of, of uh, letting it uh, happen, you know, mm. <laughs> and trusting that, that things were going to work out. Open and doors and open Open doors, sleeping and, on couches, yeah. and people were doing that. There were a lot of hitchhiking youngsters, you know, around. Um, and how did you get money? You played? I played. I busked. Oh, I... I in so the street? I, in, the, in the metro, in the subway. Oh, yeah. yeah, in the metro. I mean, I, I eventually, you know, was able to swallow my pride and call my parents and say, hey, you know, I'm really stranded. I need some money. And they would send some money via American Express once in a while. But mostly it was pretty much hand to mouth. And I really did have to support myself by by uh, busking in, in the uh, in the tunnel bonnet, in the metro. So the, the odd um, segue here mm -hmm. is that the story that I've been told... Um, is that a couple of years after you graduated from school, mm. uh, Mrs. Marrow, my mother, got divorced mm. and decided to leave America for mm. a lot of the same reasons, although she was a, a, a white Jewish young woman mm. by, by then. And so she ran into mm -hmm. Grand Marilyn <laughs> Gore, uh, your mother, mm. and spoke about you. And mm. she basically said, oh, I'm going to Europe. Yeah. And your mom said, could you get Eric yeah. some money and yeah. I'll give you some money for him. Money and books. Money and books. <laughs> and so my mom traveled to Europe, yeah. hadn't seen you for a couple of years That's since right. you were her student. Yeah. And you guys, I don't know how, <laughs> in what way, telephone or, or... I had the address of a hotel. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just remember being nervous. I'm going to meet Mrs. Miro, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and there I was, you know, at this little hotel. And there was your mom. And hadn't seen her since graduation, you know. And, uh, yeah, we started hanging out. And, and, you know, destiny took over. And then... We sort of have to speed version this part, <laughs> but but basically, uh, you you fell in love. You got together, mm. right? You you stayed in Paris. in Paris for a while. Yes, we had we had a couple of uh, kind of temporary places, but then we decided, yeah, you actually came to Sweden. Yeah, yeah. and and she had never been. No, you had been when you were thirteen. That's right. Why did you come to Sweden? I'd heard through some friends in Paris, good things. Um, about Sweden being basically uh, a place that was liberal in its political stance in the world, open, somewhat welcoming society. Musicians had been there and had good things to say about it. So, yeah. And as an interracial couple, as it were, it seemed like we needed to be somewhere where we were going to not always run into challenges because of that. It's so strange to think about today because the world is so different mm. and yet so much is the same. <laughs> well put. <laughs> I'll tell you a story. Yes. Just, this is the kind of thing that, that could happen and did happen. I remember your mom and I went on a very brief, cheap vacation to Corsica uh, not long after we got together and were living in, in Stockholm. 
We're sitting in a little uh, restaurant in Corsica. I'm sitting at this table with your mom having dinner, trying to kind of ignore a kind of bad vibe that I'm getting from the next table from some pretty rough looking guys. And finally one of them says, just looks over kind of casually and says, I kill blokes who look like you. This is obviously somebody who'd had some experience on the African continent as a soldier for hire. And it was like a threat, but it was, it was just kind of like him having to claim something. And as a young, what, 19, 20-year-old in a foreign country with my partner who's not looking like me, and we're obviously standing out and attracting attention, but when you realize that there was that kind of animosity for, for people like us, you had to be prepared to deal with that. You moved to Sweden. Mm. My version of <laughs> Sweden in those days is that it was very white. Mm. Um, still is <laughs> in a, a lot of parts of Sweden. Mm -hmm. What was it like to be mm, black question. in Sweden in the early right. 70s? Well, let me qualify it. To be black is one thing. To be an American black is another thing. What I noticed fairly early on was that there was a status that was afforded African Americans that was not afforded Africans. There was something about being an American that lent you a certain place in, in the hierarchy kind of system of things. There was a little fascination with African American culture, certainly from the musical point of view. So Still people, is. yes. So people were more curious and in a kind of benign way, naive way, it wasn't like, get out of here, you know, you don't belong here. It was more like, oh, brother, welcome, you know, can I touch your afro, you know? <laughs> it was like that. Kids used to come up and put their hands in my hair, you know? And it was cute. It was cute. Things have um, moved on from there, but that was what the environment was like. I could and count. And that was okay for you. That wasn't. Like you know why it was okay? Like I said, I could count the people who look like me on two hands. You know, in Stockholm at that time, I was totally okay with the lack of overt hostility towards me as a black person that I experienced, and I enjoyed not thinking about it every day. You know, finally, it was like a space where. I wasn't totally from minute to minute conscious of having to deal with a situation where I'm in the minority, you know, even though I was certainly stuck out as being, you know, in the minority. There was a kind of um, curiosity about other cultures and a friendliness uh, that I miss, and I understand why it's evolved into something else. Um, there have been a lot of changes. The demographics of Sweden have changed dr drastically. You also moved to Stockholm, which mm. was, you yes. know... Yes, now let's get real. You know, yeah. you didn't move to the yeah. country. Yeah, sorry. That would have that, that yeah, would have been and, different. And, and might still be a, a very difficult situation. Oh, sure, situation. sure. Oh, I remember going to certain communities later in Sweden, in the South, for example, and really being consciously aware of people, uh, uh, of people being openly hostile. Mm. You ultimately had a, a child, your first child. Yes, yes. I My was brother, 20. who was born uh, in 1972 in Sweden. Basically, how did you get by? Mm -hmm. What did you do for a okay. living when you came to Sweden? Okay, good question. Well, I remember trying to get any gig I could performing. I remember I got in touch with MNV, the uh, record company out on Vauxholm, and was able to make a, a, a record there. But, you know, gigs were really... Was that your first album? Well, I'd made my own kind of 
self-print album when I lived in Paris for a while. So let's talk about that. Things. Yes. Right? Because okay. you've made over 40 albums, yeah. right? Yeah. So when did you start writing your own songs? I think the first song I wrote that I remember was called Look Long Away, and I was 14 years old. So the first album that you recorded, uh, it, was that with your own music? Or, yes, yeah, oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. I was, you know, I had a time in Paris where I was basically um, struggling to, to feed myself, but I met some people who were very supportive. And eventually I had a tape, a reel-to-reel -reel tape of, you know, 12 songs or something. And I took the little money that I had, and I took it to somebody who could press it into two you know, vinyl records, you know. Sent one to my mother. I think it might be somewhere around in New oh, York. Wow. Uh, and yeah, it was just... Um, so this is like 1970, you, yeah. did, you made your first album. You could say that, yeah. Some of the songs that I would encourage people to listen to when it comes to poetry in motion, <laughs> that you've written the song called Don't Let Nobody Drag Your Spirit Down. You might slip You might slide, stumble and fall by the roadside. Don't you ever let nobody drag your spirit down. Well, we're walking up to heaven. Don't let nobody turn you around. let nobody drag your spirit and, and down. The, and the thing about what I'm trying to say with this is that that for me is the essence of you, mm -hmm. right? To this day, Eric, I mean, you've written thousands upon thousands <laughs> of amazing songs. The fact that you still have things to say astounds me. But the song for you has always been the ultimate sort of love song. Mm. And it's never left mm. me, you know, mm. it's just the purest of mm. songs and you know it's funny uh, uh, that song is a song that I wrote in 1988 I believe it's that long ago and it came to me in a real dark night of the soul where I was feeling completely personally abandoned and I was so devastated I remember being alone having not even a bottle of wine for soulless around and I remember desperately kind of almost praying for some kind of relief. And then all of a sudden, this song landed. And I tell you, for you, it's one of the best songs I ever wrote. And it took about a half hour to write. I will walk across a burning desert Bearing water to quench your thirst Just call my name Time it takes to think of me, I will be there by your side. I'll be there, call my name. Take you somewhere so beautiful Give me your dreams Together we'll make them come true 
pieces of your heart when it's broken. I'll mend it for you. My introduction to you musically was, of course, your own music, but mm. through a, a very interesting and innovative project, which was the fact that you became a music teacher mm. out in Rinkibi, which is the most ethnically diverse suburb of Stockholm. And you got by as a music teacher in the school with those kids. Middle and, school, yeah. Yeah, in middle school. And I mean, you could have just taught them about music and mm. how to sing and mm. how to play instruments, but that wouldn't be who <laughs> you are. No. And so you decided to do something very different with these kids. Yeah, I was so focused on my own musical dreams, which revolved around not only performing, but writing songs. And I was obviously experiencing severe difficulties finding enough work to support myself as an artist. This was before Americana as such became a huge substrata of, of popular music. Yeah, this is the 80s. This yes. is pop. Yes. This was yes. Sweden's... And I must say, I, I, I must have made my attempts at trying to be the, you know, little Lionel Richie type of vibe, you know, going on. That, that I, I think I pursued that for a hot minute before I realized that that was definitely not my forte. <laughs> But anyhow, I, I was still focused on trying to keep the music on the front burner. And a friend of mine said, listen, I'm teaching math out in Rinkeby. Good kids, interesting community. I'm sure if you went to the rector and told him you're a musician with experience with young people, you could get a job teaching music without too much of a, a big problem. Had you at that time had any other sort of normal type of job to yeah. support yourself? Oh, sure. Uh, intermittently, you know, through the years, um, I, I'd had jobs um, as diverse as working for the street maintenance agency. I had a job as a postman, you know, on a bicycle out in Tebby. I remember one winter day, I slid on the ice and all of the letters fell out of the pouch, you know. So instead of delivering the letters, I'm standing there in the snow trying to make sure they don't fly away and stop them back into the bag in the wrong order. It was not really a great gig for me. Uh, I admire people who deliver the post and people who... who, who keep those hours. I remember coming home after a gig. I'd get home, like, get in bed at three in the morning. At four, I'd be up, you know, off to the post office to sort mail. That didn't last too long, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I struggled. Um, It wasn't a very easy life in the beginning. Uh, in those early days, I ended up translating children's books, young people's picture books, Alphonse Aubert. I think it was me who came up with the name with Alfie Atkins, you know, which is the, the, the translation for Alfonso Orbea. I didn't know that. I did, I did Lotta books. I did, I translated some Astrid Lindgren. I, I, I had a, a really nice run uh, with some lovely people at Rabbi Nushurgan who were very supportive of me. But, you know, fortunately, this friend had, had come with a suggestion that was just the right thing for me at that time in my life. I went to the school. I was interviewed by the rector who said, if you can get these kids to come to the class and stay in the class, you've got the job. Let's try it out. So I went to the schools, 
two schools at the time. And I said, kids, you know, this is a very serious time. The war in, uh, in Iraq has shocked the world. I know some of you even have family members in that part of the world who are worried about their own well-being and, and you're worried about them. Let's write songs together uh, about peace and war and friendship. And um, it was a way for me to not only make a living, but a way for me to pursue the music on my own terms, essentially. I had a great deal of freedom there. And in, in that moment, yeah. you ultimately became both your parents at the same time. It's true. It's so true. And I'll tell you what's funny. You know, when my dad finally had enough of New York show business, what my dad did was start an organization called A Step Ahead, which was basically the same kind of situation I had with Rinkeby Kids, the, the kids' choir. My dad would travel around to different schools, um, basically holding clinics about diversity and mobbing and this kind of thing, but with a musical program where he would send music ahead of them and prepare school orchestras, etc. So working with children, young people, and music towards cultivating a more ethical society was definitely something that I shared with my parents, you know, in a big way. And, and it, your mother still worked as an educator. Yeah. I mean, basically her whole yes, career. Yes, she was the dean of students at uh, a famous... Uh, institution called Cooper Union. My mom was so proud of me for being uh, this teacher out in Rinkeby. I think of all the accomplishments that I could, you know, tell you that I'm proud of. My mom, she was just over the moon that I had spent time, years, teaching, you know, children of, of different cultural backgrounds um, to sing uh, and perform and take their place in Swedish society. She was so proud of me. Hmm. But you're right. You, you've pointed that out very clearly that um, I kind of took what I got from so many people, but certainly from my, my two parents, and basically turned that into my calling, you know, what I do. that you wanted to write with these kids, mm. you know, that you wanted them involved mm. with the creation of the mm. song and not just... That was just... a wonderful thing to do with them because uh, uh, many of them really had uh, serious talent, you know, some of them pursued careers. But just to get their take on what was going on in the world, I mean, you take kids for granted. You know, the adults do what they do. They, they create wars. They separate kids from their grandparents and their families. They make them move to other countries. And, like, what's their take on all this whole thing, you know? What, what do you guys think of all this crazy stuff going on, you know, watching the news? I remember we wrote that thing called Fred and Symphony, and it was a whole, basically a whole show based on uh, their take and my take on, on war and peace, yeah. How many years did you work Five. Then? Five years. Five years. We sang on the floor of Parliament. We sang for Nelson Mandela and, uh, and de Klerk when they, they came to Stockholm to visit. We were on television. Uh, we toured. We had a tour bus. We went to gigs. We opened for Salomon Rushdie at the book fair in Gothenburg. We got to the gig in Gothenburg, and before we could do our sound check, there's all these Seppo people with dogs, sniffer dogs, and they said, what are you doing? This is our sound check time. I said, no, excuse me, you can't come in yet. We have to clear the place, make sure there's no bombs. You know, I said, what? Yeah. 
Yeah. But it was a very, very fruitful time Would for you me. have ever imagined growing up in a, you know, quite a political family mm. that <laughs> you would end up singing for the leader of South Africa mm. because you trained a, a kids' choir of immigrants no, that in was, Sweden. No. Well, I met uh, Mandela twice. I think the first time was when he came to Sweden shortly after being released from Robben Island and uh, his Swedish uh, support group here wanted to celebrate him at a concert at the concert house in Stockholm. And I remember standing backstage... Uh, Cindy Peters was there, Thomas Ledine was there, and we're all standing around backstage, kind of nervous, waiting for the concert to begin. And all of a sudden, we're aware of this presence in this tiny little room, and there's Mr. Mandela coming to say hello to all the artists before they even get on stage, just to say, thank you, people, for, for being here for me. It's an honor for me to be celebrated in this way. And, and then my friend Cindy started elbowing me. I happened to have my guitar hanging on me. And she said, Eric, sing it now. And I said, what? She said, sing your song now. You got him here. You might, he might get tired. And by the time you get on stage, he'll be gone. Like, sing the song now. So I said... Only an American yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. say no. that oh, to yeah. another oh, yeah. American. There you go. There you go. You got that right. You got that right. And I'm saying, all of a sudden, I felt like, like he was the only guy in the room. And I just said... Uh, Mr. Mandela, I wrote a song called Mandela is Free that I'm going to be performing in a few minutes, perhaps. But I wonder if I could just sing part of it for you now, person to person. He's standing like where you are, like, you know, a meter and a half away from me. And I sang it, you know. Would you mind uh, opening your <laughs> case? I wouldn't mind at all. Um, just because you, you chose to talk about that moment, would you mind playing like just a few bars of the Mandela is Free song? Oh, my goodness. Do you remember it? It's, yeah, that's a good question. Nelson Mandela How'd that song go? Nelson Mandela Gave us a gift Worth more Than all the diamonds And gold in Africa Nelson Mandela Gave us a gift Courage and vision Cannot be imprisoned His wisdom and love Showed us all Mandela Mandela is free Mandela Nelson Mandela No, I love that song. Oh. I remember that song. And I have this photograph in my my living room of me, you know, with my guitar around my neck, standing and talking to Nelson Mandela. It's unreal, you know? It's like, and then it isn't unreal because I could feel my parents, my godfather, all of these people kind of lined up behind me, you know, uh, preparing me for that moment. When you reach the point that you have now after these decades of touring and... Mm. and 
creating music is that you sort of see what that has given you, mm. which is, in your case, a worldwide audience. Mm. Thankfully, mm. finally, after mm. yeah. a good 25 years of, of yeah. you know, hustling, yes. um, you've been nominated for an American Grammy, mm. you've played with some of the greats, mm. uh, collaborated with some of the best in the world, been on the biggest stages, and it's also cost you cost you a great deal. You're not um, wrong. With children and, and partners. That's what I was going to say. The children factor is what happens with any successful career. Somebody's paying uh, a bigger price than most people are aware of. And it usually comes down to the performance children's. You know, let's get real. Because the time that you're out on the road uh, creating a world fan base is also the time when, you know, your, your son or daughter is graduating or has a performance at school that you are missing, man. That's the facts. When people ask me about, you know, what it's about to be a performer, I always mention the sacrifice that not only me, but that basically my children have made towards my career, mm -hmm. uh, wittingly or unwittingly, you know. And their uh, mothers. Yes, yeah. well, goes without saying. Yeah, you know, no, but I mean, it, th yeah. that's also a, a big part of the journey, I think, to... Yes come to terms with the choice that mm. in some people's life, art is oxygen. Yes. And being without it is not being a whole person. Mm. And that, I think, is also something that has been so clear during this pandemic, that art is not a choice mm -hmm. for some people. Right. Like when you tell people in a casual, flippant way, just to retrain. Yeah. Uh, What an insult. Yeah. You t you're telling that to a surgeon? Yeah. Hey, man, you know, just get yeah. another gig. You yeah. Know? But I got to tell you, you know, aside from people's um, awareness of celebrities, there just is really a gap, a knowledge gap between the reality of being a working performer, artist, and the general public's perception of what that life is and what it means to, to get to a point where you can actually float a career. You know, we, we focus on the, the um, extravagance and the glamour of it all, but that's just a small part of this life of hauling suitcases from hotels to sound checks to, you know what I mean? It's like... That's also <clears throat> been such a good lesson and life lesson in watching you continue, you know, always getting up, <laughs> packing your bag, you know, putting your guitar... <laughs> on a plane somewhere trying to make it survive the mm -hmm, flight mm -hmm. because yeah. knowing you it's a, it's a it's an expensive guitar and and also going through the, the the times in your life when you know putting your guitars in pawn shops was mm. your way mm. to survive exactly um that for me is sort of the essence of when art becomes a calling mm. and, and a yes. life. Because yes. I, I don't know many people who would have the stamina to mm -hmm. do what you do. There you go. And, and you, I'm glad you brought that up because the fact is we don't really stay on top of what it costs us because we are still driven by this incredible obsession and passion for, for music, which makes us forget that we're getting paid. If you, if you put it into an hourly wage, it would be scandalous. And there are people in the industry, unfortunately, who are very well aware of it and who take advantage uh, of musicians because of that need. It's the oxygen need. But in the end of the day, it's like you would say to young people in the clinic who are thinking of a career in music, well, 
Absolutely. Pursue it, but only if you must. Mm. <laughs> Be prepared for some, some hard knocks, you know. Yeah. If you look at fame to be your guiding star, fame doesn't give you a career. An audience gives you a career. Mm -hmm. Stamina gives you a career. Mm -hmm. And being able to do what you do, which is sit in front of anyone, anywhere, mm -hmm. and create music with your own two hands, mm -hmm. your guitar and your voice, mm -hmm. with your lyrics and your songs, that is some of the most timeless visions of an artist mm. that we'll ever see. <laughs> When you open your mouth, God walks in. Mm. Wow, sorry. You know, this is what a performer like myself who comes from the tradition that I come from, you want to make something that's going to basically uplift your listener. So for me, to hear that from you, to hear that um, that comes across, what could be more gratifying Uh, as an artist, to be able to put together words and melodies and harmonies and end up with something that means something not only to you and excites you, but other people. I don't know if it gets better than that. But how did you get up in the mornings all those years when it wasn't <laughs> happening? What drove you? I knew that I had something that was unique to my experience. It was the combination of all my influences in music that not only was worth something to me, but I suspected if people could get to hear it, they would understand. They would include me in a whole tribe of one man, one woman performers. And I wasn't going to give up. And you know, I, I can tell you, Sarah, When it first started to happen for me internationally, when I first got a break in England and I started to get interviewed by magazines and goodness knows even get feature stories and even get on the cover of some magazines and all, when that started happening, you know, I was clipping out everything, you know, saving everything. And, and it was really about being ambitious because I was excited to finally get that recognition. And I pursued it and I would be pissed off or jealous even if I could see a friend of mine, a colleague who'd gotten uh, something that I hadn't yet been offered in terms of a magazine space or whatever. And I don't mean it was big time, because mostly I'm a, just a, a grateful musician. What I can say is that if you don't give up, if for whatever reason, if for whatever combination of reasons, you are provided with the encouragement, strength, and support of others, that keeps you going to the point where you are recognized finally, you're in the band, you're in the tribe of people who you consider yourself uh, an equal of. Uh, when you start to be able to be on same stages and collaborate with your heroes and sheroes, then you just say, okay, I get it. You have to pay some dues too. Um, do you think that it came when it was supposed to Yeah, come? I do, I do, because you know what? My vanity probably wouldn't have allowed me to get the kind of recognition that I have now had I not been at the level where I felt like I really deserved it. So You had to grow into the hat. Yeah. When you're performing music and attaching yourself to a tradition of some legendary performers, there is a responsibility that you're aware of. And you realize you got to fake it until you make it. But basically, one day... You're going to own it. You're going to step into those shoes. You're going to feel comfortable or more comfortable than you used to uh, in your own skin 
Because you're no longer performing, you're actually just being who you've come to be. Um, you are an artist and uh, you do have a guitar. So before we mm. start to round up, mm. is there anything you want to play or yeah, sing with me? Or yeah, is there... I, you know, one of the songs that really define what I'm about and what I want to say is connected, you know. Yeah. That's one of the ones that, um, yeah, it's, it's up there with, with those kind of songs that I feel are bigger than me or uh, my songwriting. I got my own roots to water And got my own family tree Got my own set of heroes That mean something to me Got my own road to travel And my own stories to tell In my own time Got my own way of talking Got my own way to smile Got my own will walking My own look and style Got my own way of praying My own way to sing Still I'm connected To you Everyone And everything I got my own roots to water I got my own family tree my own list of questions I got my own truth to live I got my own handmade gifts that I'm longing to give I got my own way of praying got my own way of praying my own way to sing my own way to sing still I'm connected To you, everyone and everything. Got my own way of walking. Got my own way of. Got my own way to smile. Got my own way to smile. Got my own way of talking. Got my own way to talk. My own look and style. Yes, you do. I got my own way to pray. Oh, yeah, yeah. My own way to sing. My own way to sing. Still, I'm connected to you, everyone and everything. Still, I'm connected to you, everyone. Everything connected, still I'm connected to you, 
the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hmm. That was nice. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> You know, Unrehearsed. everything has its time. Everything yeah. has its time. You know, here we are sitting in your living room, having a serious talk about serious things, talking about the future. I just want to have a few of your thoughts on what the world looks like now. Mm. Of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, mm. you know, you living back here in Sweden and the way that Sweden's changed over the years. Mm-hmm. What are your fears about the world as it is now? And what are your hopes? Um, definitely a, a topic that I could, yeah. you know, go on and on and on about because it, uh, it really is something that I'm uh, focused on right now and have been. I've looked at life from both sides now, as you could say, in the sense that I've had a chance to enjoy privilege. I've also had a chance to experience hardship I can definitely empathize with a refugee or a migrant because I've left the home of my birth and integrated myself in a society geographically further away from where I began. I can say I've had the blessing to have been able to use that information to come to the conclusion that we are truly more alike than we are different. I don't think everybody has that perspective. I would say that my hopes for the world are real when I see young people who have heretofore not really been actively involved in an issue like Black Lives Matter, but an issue that one way or another affects absolutely everyone. Nobody has escaped the conditioning of centuries of insane thinking that has created the kind of discriminatory attitudes that that you see uh, that lead to uh, a situation where a movement like Black Lives Matter is necessary. I'm hopeful because I've seen young people understand their connectivity and understand that Black Lives Matter is just another way of saying all lives matter, but we have neglected to value the lives of darker-skinned people systematically. That's a heavy realization to come to and to acknowledge and to actually take a stand about and do something about. But it's not about really just 
storming the barricades at all. What it's really about is getting to know each other. I think the whole issue concerning us, aside from the very pressing issue of how we relate to Mother Earth and the gifts that Mother Earth provides that we have abused, aside from that very um, critical, urgent issue, is the related issue of understanding who we really are and who our fellow brothers and sisters are so that we don't waste our energies defending ourselves in tribal skirmishes so that we pool our resources. I think of all the people who have been excluded and marginalized who have something to offer that could be turning points in, you know, creating the world that we need to desperately create before we, you know, dive into the abyss. So I'm hopeful because I've seen signs of an awakening that are new. And I support all of that. And I think the conversation about all of these important issues just needs to be intensified. I want to see more and more people having the courage to embrace the very uncomfortable conversation about race that we've avoided collectively for so long. But now we cannot avoid uh, any longer. What's going on in the States right now is appalling. Uh, I've never seen such a rapid disintegration of what was left of a system that I still believed in, even though I've been on the the short end of the stick as an African-American. There was something about the American system, philosophy, uh, that I felt um, was more noble than the abuse of these uh, wonderful ideals. But lately what I've seen is an incredible breakdown in civility, you know, I see a president talking like a street gangster. So what the heck? This is a country that used to lead, at least nominally, lead the world in spouting and espousing democratic ideals and respect for other people. And you see such incredible disrespect coming from the head of state of what was once considered the most powerful country in the world. So I just think, as John Lewis said, It's time for us to stand up, speak up, and speak out. It's really time for everybody to be involved in creating this better world that we we all want. And uh, we're seeing an incredible struggle going on with people not listening to each other. I don't remember it ever being like this. I'm a child, like I said, of the 60s, of tremendous upheaval. But i never seen such an amazing... Divisiveness. And disconnect. Disconnect. That's the word. Disconnect. We definitely need to listen to each other. We definitely need to, in a non-attacking way, pursue these difficult conversations and come to consensus about what needs to be done. We definitely need to continue. I have faith because I, I don't know another way to live. I believe in love. I think love does win in the end. But it's a question of how long we're going to be waiting for us to get to the conclusion that we're all God's children and need to treat each other accordingly. Uh, it's either going to be a long, drawn-out suffering uh, on the way to learning, or we'll shorten it because we'll have come to some awareness quickly and in big numbers, and we can make some serious changes rapidly, which is possible. Thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, Bib, hmm. you ready for 10 quick ones? I am, I okay. am. I'm curious about these 10. <laughs> <laughs> 10 quick ones with Sarah Dawn Fire. Okay, let's go. Tea or coffee? Okay, I'm going coffee. Red or white? Red or white? You're a wine drinker. Oh, I'm going definitely red. Home or on the road? Home. New York or Stockholm? Stockholm. Singing or playing guitar? Playing guitar. It was better then or nope, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Hat or no hat? Hat. God and religion or faith and spirit? Faith and spirit. Veggies or meat? Veggies. City or nature? Nature. Good job. <laughs> Ten quick ones. Yeah. Okay, so the last thing, if you take three recommendations, whatever they mm -hmm. are that you want to leave this mm -hmm. conversation and whoever's listening with. Mm -hmm. I think of John Lewis's last message to, to the world that was so eloquently um, uh, expressed in the voice of Morgan Freeman. You can find that on the net. It's just a very inspiring uh, message from a longtime champion of justice and equality. The other thing I would like to, off the top of my head, quickly recommend is Marianne Williamson's wonderful book, Return to Love. To me, that book has it all. I can also say that going forward, I'm going to give encouragement to anybody even mildly interested in vegetarianism or veganism. Uh, I've been on and off uh, a vegetarian for most of my adult life. These days, I'm a committed vegetarian uh, and moving rapidly into vegan zone. And I can only say that once you make a start, if you're interested in it all for whatever reasons, health reasons, environment reasons, empathy reasons, whatever, if you're interested at all and you pursue it, you'll find that over time, you generally naturally gravitate towards a more plant-based diet. You don't have to force yourself. You don't have to attack your meat-eating friends. You know, none of that. You just have to follow your, your heart. And if your heart says, hey, I really think it's a cool idea, but I'm not sure I can get the satisfaction I need, I can tell you it's definitely worth investigating. I think it's important. Eric Bibb, thank you for talking to me. I love talking to you, Sarah Dawn. I love talking to you. It was a pleasure. And I can't wait for whoever doesn't know as much about you and your music to, to hear you today mm -hmm. and to listen to at least a good 10 of the 40 albums you've made. <laughs> uh, a lot of them are online or in the web shop. You can find everything you need to find on ericbib.com. On that note, by the way, I must take this opportunity to just shout out about a record that um, is just in the final mixing stage, Sarah. Um, and it will be out in the beginning of the next year. Uh, and it's called Dear America. Good title. <laughs> Very good title. Yeah. Okay, let's round up this conversation and just um, say thank you. To Sintak. To Sintak. <laughs> hey, Doa, Eric. Hey, Doa. Hey, Doa.